I mean, like, what else has been going on now that we have, like, reliable, like, video chat going on? It's not just, like, prepping for a podcast. No, no it's like the after party. We can just do the after uh, party. Oh, man. I, that reminds me so much what of when uh, the kingdom, we always listen to the remix to Ignition was, like, our house theme song. It's such a fucking bummer, R. Kelly. God, what a nightmare. And after the show, it's... The after pissy. Lasagna party. <laughs> You're listening to the Super Week Super Weekly Supercast. I'm your host, Evan. And I'm your host, Doc Chris Bag Levo Bag. And I'm your host, Andrew Wilson. And I am your host, Mikey Paul Jonathan Davis Tajjin. And today we have a very special guest with us. Hey guys, I am not your host. This is uh, Martin Buckley, former housemate and uh, I guess um, studio rat, all around good dude formerly of Sprinkle Kingdom and Philadelphia, PA. And I feel like that was a super awkward intro. No, that was great. No, you're All making right, cool. it your own. You're playing in the space, and I respect that. Well, oh, thank you. And you actually, you, you bring up a good point right out of the gate by saying that typically we make a list of all of the bands that the people have been in with Evan as soon as they come on. You're our first guest to not have been in a band with Evan. Yeah, in fact, I'm probably going to be your only guest that's probably never been in a band. Just kidding. You were in the Super Weeks when you recorded uh, this song. That's true. I, I did so play bass. You've technically been in a band with me. Yeah, you're you're a guest performer. You're a guest member for okay. you know that one week and then thus all of time. So get, yeah, give yourself a little bit more credit. Some more rock pedigree. Okay. <laughs> I, I almost said pregnant. Pregnant. <laughs> Off to a strong pregnant. start. I will get myself so pregnant with rock. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's like Gwyneth Paltrow, right? She encourages people to uh, stick uh, jade eggs in their in their coochies, right? So that's like being pregnant with a rock in a way. I think that's this correct. Yeah. yeah. If I am pregante, pregante, uh, look at your phone now to see what that looks like. If Mikey pregnant, is this like some Sonic the Hedgehog fan art style stuff? <laughs> Mikey's pregnant and wearing a diaper. I can't wait for our our deviant art to really take off like that. Speaking of Sonic. There's the Olympic game. Sorry, I just saw this and I can't wait to download it and play it. Sonic and Mario Olympics, Tokyo. When's that happening? It's on Switch. You can download it and there's all kinds of games. There's like, he's like shredding in a half pipe and it's insane. I don't know. Way off topic. Are you just watching ads come across your screen and commenting on them as we do? Full disclosure for the listener, this is our first fully virtual episode of the podcast, and I think our collective ADD is going to be on fire tonight with uh, all the shit that's going to pop up. But yeah, I love Sonic and Mario, the Olympic Games. That was on GameCube, the first one, right? I'm glad that the series lives on, hopefully every four years. I'm getting a lot of blank stares. I had no idea until just before meeting y'all here. Well, I'll tell you what, if this if we really crash and burn tonight, we can just record ourselves doing live commentary playing Sonic and Mario at the Olympic Games together. But anyway, we were introducing Martin. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so yeah, Martin, you are a special case in that you are not like a professional musician, I guess, in the way that most of our other friends are. Why don't you tell us, like, what is your... Because you're in the entertainment industry. What is your angle on the entertainment industry that you do? Currently, I work for an entertainment and sports tech company where we basically do, like, a lot of, like, the big outfield TVs for, like, sports arenas or, like, the big center-hung video displays for basketball arenas. Damn. 
That's uh, that's where we're at. We also just started selling the stuff that's it's glass that has LED embedded in it. It's really popular and it's it's cool because you're just walking down the street and all of a sudden an entire building lights up. Cool. Oh wait, are you saying like it's like motion response to people walking by the LED on the building? You can do that. You can play games on it. There's like apps you can do like drawing and stuff on it as long as you nice. have access to the the building. Yeah, you can do advertisements, all kinds of stuff. You can do like, you know, video. Just a quick show of hands. Did every single one of you, as soon as he said you could draw on the LED screen, think about drawing a big dong on the side of it? No. Nope. Cool. I'll edit that out. (laughs) Oh, Wilson, thank you for raising your hand. I got you. Incriminating myself immediately as the biggest idiot here. But that's sick. But I I think, Chris, that just means you're the only one that was paying attention. Well, you know, I'm heavily invested. I mean, I used to work at the Wells Fargo Center for seven years. So I was uh, always had it in the corner of my eye. What what do they call it there? The center home? The big screen had a specific name. Jumbotron. Jumbotron. It was the Jumbotron. Thank you. Our company did that one. Yeah, we we just did that. The new one that drops out of the ceiling and opens up. It like pulls out and another screen pops out and then it reconnects. And it's got these rings around it that like go up and down. It's crazy. Are you like up in the air hanging this thing? No, no, no. I, uh, I do like the numbers and stuff for it. Like I'm, I've got a very tame vanilla job now. See, that's that is a turn because Martin has been like a jack of all trades kind of wild man, making sets for TV shows. You worked with JB Smooth on one of oh, his yeah. shows, right? Yeah, we did some TV shows with him where I did everything. I was an electrician on an off-Broadway show for years. Can you tell us the name of the show? Oh, yes. Yeah, it's it's, uh, it's Sleep No More. It's a, a fully immersive, interactive experience of Macbeth, where there's six floors of like just spaces, and you're like, you're walking through and you open up a door and all of a sudden you're in somebody's apartment or then you're in a graveyard. It's like really weird. And then they make everybody wear like these like eyes wet shut masks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like they're, you're running around the space with a bunch of just strangers and you have no idea who's who. And then all of a sudden somebody not wearing a mask runs by and that's how you can tell who the performers are. And you have to like chase them down and see their scenes. And then when they split up, you have to like figure out like, do I want to follow this guy? Or do I want to follow that guy? Or do I just want to stay out, you know, hang out and stay here? Wow. Absolutely wild. So in, in a similar fashion to Eyes Wide Shut, are they using any naked people as tables and furniture during the performance? Best scene. There is a lot of nudity. In fact, you know, I don't want to get sued or break my NDA, but there is actually a blood orgy um, that happens where, you know, there's there's a baby, there's a lot of nudity, there's there's screaming, there's a ton of blood. <laughs> a guy walks out wearing like, what do you call it, like a minotaur head. So it's a good time. You know, great for family, kids, parents. So Based on you. Macbeth too, it's a classic. So it's, it's yeah. educational. Yeah. Did you ever watch Scotland PA, the Macbeth movie where they modernized it to like the 70s and instead of it being... Or what was he, like a duke or something? Macbeth kills the king, right? Spoilers, sorry. And he and his wife like rise to power because of that. So instead of it being a kingdom, it is instead the fast food boom in the early 70s. And the reason I bring this up is because Christopher Walken is Inspector Macduff, the guy who finally like was destined to kill Macbeth in it. And so it's an incredible, you know, bizarre performance from him. And I think Amy Smart is the weird sisters in it too. Great film. Highly, highly recommend. Any Macbeth adaptation is always golden in my book, especially if they go full Kubrick and they have naked people acting as furniture in the set. I can't tell how serious you're being about that orgy. Is that was that a real thing that you're saying? 100%. Absolutely 1,000%. And they play really loud techno music. And one point, the entire room goes black and they do a really slow strobe. And so, like, all of a sudden, like, you see, like, this naked woman and she, like, gets up on this table and, like, you know, you're only getting, like, 
flashes and bits of her. And this guy wearing a fucking minotaur mask like shows up in the middle of the crowd and he's hanging dong and he's coming out of nowhere and then there's blood. It's crazy. Sounds wow. sick. Well, definitely not a COVID-friendly performance, but uh, once we're all vaccinated, I think we got to do a podcast trip to go see Sleep No More. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I saw my employee ID. I'll sneak us all in. Unless you're an employee of Sleep No More, then I, uh, I'm i not going to do that, just in case anybody out there is listening. I feel like we can support the arts. I'll go see it. It's in New York somewhere, right? Just got to yeah. go up there somehow. It's in Chelsea. It's closed right now because, again... COVID. Are we are we talking about COVID on the podcast, or is this supposed to you be like timeless? You can talk about whatever you want, man. No, it doesn't exist. Okay. Well, I'm Vaccines glad Vaccines aren't real. Mikey and I are on the same page. Thank God. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Andrew, too. Mikey ordered a Gwyneth Paltrow jade egg to put in his butt. That's like He's, he's immune to COVID. <laughs> Mikey, do you also have the, the, the Gwyneth Paltrow vagina-scented candle? Yes. Okay. Good. No. Oh, because I. Is that a real thing? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I tried to buy one. They were sold out. That is a real thing. Yeah. They apparently wow. they made a candle that was scented with like some of her favorite smells, and then after it was like in production, she took a whiff of it and said to whoever the designer was, like, "This smells like my vagina." And then they started marketing it as the Gwyneth Paltrow vagina candle. I think. So it's Ooh. her scent, not the general vaginal scent. According to her own. Olfactory prowess. It is specifically her own vagina scent. Gwyneth Paltrow's. Maybe we can call the Coldplay guy and see if he can verify that for everybody. Chris are Martin. They, married? they were married. They they are now, what did they say? Respectfully uncoupling or something? Some real Gwyneth Paltrow type stuff. Anyway, this is enough of the celebrity gossip portion of, of the uh, the podcast. Well, I was just going to say, the year that we recorded this was also 2012, right? All, all of these were done in 2012, Evan? Yeah, right now we're in 2012. That's not what I asked you. Well, no, like the oh, era of when we recorded all this stuff is in 2012. We didn't go back in time. So, Martin, what is your recollection of 2012? We were, I think we were living together on 45th. Martin and I were roommates, forgot to disclose this, after Sprinkle Kingdom. And we lived above the Second Mile Thrift Store in West Philadelphia on 45th Street. And it was a wild year. I would say that there was almost nothing but disaster that entire year, 2011 to 2012, before we finally split ways and... Chris, where did you even end up moving after that? I moved into a nightmare junkie den of some friends who I don't really talk to as much anymore. Right. Yeah. If you remember, like you moved out while I was on tour. I was hired by a band as a sideman, and I was, I was filling in on a three-month tour with them, playing bass, and then you got a job opportunity in New York. And so while I was on the road, you were like, look, I have to move by the end of the month. I have this huge opportunity. I'm sorry. I hope you can figure everything out. And I had to, from the road, this like call around to people that we knew to see who had a room available. And our friends who shall remain nameless had a space open in their house. And it was, uh, you know, it was a, a filthy little place above a barber shop. I, I had to adapt, you know, bring down certain expectations of how I was going to be living at the time. All as well, that ends well. We, we formed the Super Weeks that year. It was a fun time. Yeah, it was a fun time. Yeah, what was that job that you moved to New York for? I ended up getting uh, a job working at a film studio, like right out of college, and it ended up closing like six months after I started working there. It was not a good situation. I was like, I felt so bad. So I was like, Chris, I got to go. I got this huge opportunity for this film studio. And then everything came crashing down and I was a landscaper for a little while. Yeah, I went back to delivering sandwiches too after <laughs> uh, after having a big tour where I got paid. So yeah, our, our intertwined destinies uh, 
although it was separate, we were still moving at the same pace in a lot of ways. Yeah, uh, it was. I, I guess it was a nice little crescendo at the end of 2012 for us because it was just the one thing I do remember though is like a string of bummer after bummer, and all we ever did was laugh about it. I think that was like the coolest part was like. Like you would walk into my room that didn't even have a fucking door on it. Like we just we just walk in. I think there was a sheet. And you'd be like, "Dude, oh, like yeah. something else happened," and I would just be like, "Holy hell!" And I, you know, I would drink about it, and you were, you know, drinking at the time, so you just watched me drink about it. <laughs> well, let's set the the framework for that year too. That was the year that my parents got divorced, so that kicked things off in a fun way. With that, I think we were both like out of work. I I had just graduated from college. And you, I guess that was your senior year, or had you just graduated at that point too? That was my senior year. And then I also got my tonsils removed that year. We told the story, a little bit of it on the prior episode of the podcast, but that was when I got my tonsils removed way later in life than anyone should. And that was also coupled with the fact that I had a bleeding disorder. And so after the two-week period when I was supposed to have my tonsils healed, I actually wound up bursting my scabs and bleeding into my throat and waking up after bleeding into my stomach for the entire night with like a giant blood clot that was hanging down into my throat and choking me. That's what woke me up. And before I realized that's what was happening, I ran to our bathroom that was directly next to Martin's room. His room that, as he mentioned, had no door on it. So he could hear me choking on my own blood. And uh, can you just describe that scene from your perspective when you whipped your curtain open to check on me? I mean, it was both terrifying, but kind of par for the course for the year. It was just like, I heard something was wrong. And uh, I don't think you even closed the door. I think you just whipped in there and you just started taking care of yourself. And I was like, what is going on? Like, this is this is bad. I know this is going to be an unlikely thing, but if you've seen Poltergeist 2, where the dad who does the voice of Mr. Incredible in the Pixar film The Incredibles, he's the dad in the Poltergeist series. There's a scene where he vomits out like a full bestial creature from his stomach that comes crawling out of his mouth. And it's like a horrific scene. I felt that in like a microcosmic sense where I I hawked this monster blood loogie out of my throat and it hit the back of the sink and sprayed blood all over our bathroom. And Martin caught, the, he whipped his curtain of, of a door open <laughs> as I was doing that. I just remember seeing him go nearly as pale as I was. And it was his car that I borrowed to drive myself to the hospital after that happened. So uh, thank you again, Martin, for, yeah, he's like, I have to go to class, but you can take my car. And also, I mean, if we're, I mean, I know a lot of your medical stories have come up so far in the podcast, but also like that time when I was internally bleeding and I think you had like a job interview at Wells Fargo or something. And I called you up and I was like, I need to go to the hospital. And you whipped back so fast and threw me in my car and dropped me off at the ER. And you were like, we'll be back. Yeah, again, not a great year. Yeah, see, that was the kind of year that we had. Yeah, we, we were a friendship forged in the hottest fire as possible. And that's what makes it such a strong blade of, of buds. There was a lot of blood. Yeah. <laughs> well, clearly you've had a full recovery since then. Yeah, um, I, so maybe on to slightly brighter things, for a moment at least, because I, I do want to go back to that year. Do, do we back it like all the way up? Are we like talking like when we first met in like the pony days? Well, I think before we get to that, yeah, let's take a minute to listen to the song and talk about the experience of us working on that together. And then we'll flash further back in time. Evan, you want to introduce this week's song that Martin played on? It's called Lip Ring. Hey, Molly, we could sit and talk softly about nothing and everything in between. 
So apparently I, I played saxophone on this song. I didn't remember doing that. <laughs> that you did awesome. it. Awesome. About yeah, halfway cool. through, I was like, oh, uh, it sounds like Mikey's playing drums on this song. And then I double checked my notes and I was like, oh, yeah, Mikey's definitely fucking playing drums on this song. Again, more classic Mikey freewheeling, just like hippie vibe drums. I yeah, love that era. Right. Yeah. You did some cool <laughs> ass beats, dude. Where did you guys track that? I guess the basics were at the headroom back when it was at Big Mama's Warehouse. And then Martin, we, did okay. we record when you played bass on it. We recorded that in our apartment. And the gang vocals. We did bass and gang vocals, yeah. And maybe some of your guitar. Or no, maybe just like the demo version of your guitar or something. No, we might have done that there because that sounds like that is you the, might have that's, done the guitar. That's the galaxy going through a fuzz pedal. The Depinto Galaxy that I have going through the fuzz. It's like a really distinct sound that I loved at that time that I used for almost everything. Yeah, probably a gray stash, like the fuzz rocious gray stash pedal. So what I remember, especially about that era, was Chris, you had brought up to me when we were living together. It was like the end of 2011, I think. You were like, oh yeah, like me and Evan are like, are talking about doing this project where we do a song a week. And like, you guys are monsters, you're super prolific. But even at the time, I was like, that seems very ambitious because like, you guys are also in a thousand bands. I don't know how you guys are going to pull this off. And you absolutely did. It was all you guys ever did was just like play music and just keep doing it over and over and over again. And it was just like, wake up, you know, write something down or start riffing or we got to pull out the microphone because, you know, today we're recording this or we're doing that. And like, I, I remember, I think I maybe started drinking again when we did Lip Ring and, and you asked me to like play bass on it. And first I was like, like, why would you ask me? Like of everybody, you know. Like I was, I was very nervous and very, very like I was very honored, but also just terrified that I was going to screw it up. But I remember like looking up at you the entire time, being like, "Is this good?" And you were just like so kind and so supportive, like, and and you guys like all were like through every single song, we're just like so collaborative and like you know like oh yeah let's try this or like oh I like this idea or let's let's take it in this direction. There was never like this is mine. You know, I own this. Like, no, we're we're doing it my way. So I was like, yeah, let's let's try it and see if it works. And I remember that. But yeah, I definitely remember like it was a cold day in like January, February, and you pulled out like this mic that must have been from the '60s. I think it was one of those like old school. Oh, it was probably the Electro Voice mic. Yeah, one of the skinny Electro yeah, Voice yeah, yeah. mics. Yeah, it was probably I, an EV ten or RE ten. No, do you remember what the model number was? Uh, maybe an um, EV ten or an EV fifteen. Yeah, one of those. It was it was the one that Elvis famously used in his televised performance for his comeback thing where he first showed up in his glittery white and gold outfit and he did karate on stage and shit. He was holding one of those microphones yeah, that, for that. that's the 15. That's the 15, yeah, it was the 15. And I just remember that the microphone was beat to death and I think you, for some reason, had also kind of enlisted me the day we did the gang vocals to like help you set everything up. And we kind of... Like we had, to, we were flummoxed by something. I don't remember exactly what it was like. There's only one microphone, but like six people. Like, are we going to do everybody's gang vocal separately? There was some, there was some issue. But we spent like 45 minutes trying to figure it out, and then you sat down in front of your laptop and you hit record. And I think we got it in like one or two takes in like less than five minutes. We're like, okay, cool, that's it, we're done. Yeah. Well, fortunately, we had. I think Cat Bean, our friend Cat Bean, was also there while we were recording this. And she had a friend in town, Kimmy, who was actually a really good vocalist as well. Yeah, I'm looking at it. Oh, and Tyler. Oh, right. Because at this time, before 
the super weeks or the weeks at that time, but the super weeks became like officially a band. I had my own project when Evan and I were trying to figure out what we were going to do post Dangerous Ponies. And I had a band called Dear Reader and Cat Bean played keyboard and sang backing vocals in that band. And so we were rehearsing and then we were going to work on the song. And Tyler Long from Hopalong also was playing bass in that band. So he was there too. And he, he was on the gang vocals as well. I totally, totally forgot that he was also involved in this song. So he was this, a team of like, great musicians, just good buds doing weird stuff. And to also set the scene, that bedroom that I was living in at that time in in that apartment was tremendous. It was the biggest bedroom I've had in my entire life. And I had a mattress on the floor in the corner and then a desk in the other corner where I had my computer and my my monitor set up from what, what we used to record. And so it was this big cavernous sound coming from my bedroom where I just had my just like shitty mattress on the floor, college guy mattress on the floor. I can't believe that I managed to bring any dates back to that and they didn't like run away screaming because I had lived in this like serial killer-esque sort of just like barren hellhole of a bedroom. That was fortunately very good for recording gang vocals. And as a brief aside on that, like what the hell happened with the room picks? Because you got the huge room in the back with like all of the windows and like I got the shitty room up front that didn't have a door. Well, you had the balcony. Yeah, but every time we had people over, I just had a parade of like muddy shoes walking through my room every time somebody wanted to like go use the bathroom or some shit. You had to go through your room to use the bathroom? Well, if you're on the balcony. No, no, the bathroom is directly next to it. Yeah, the, Okay, so we call it a balcony, oh, right. but it was actually the roof of it's the, the roof. store that we lived on top of. And because Martin, <laughs> Martin had like a, like a window that faced the front, but it just opened up to the second mile's roof. So I don't know why they didn't just complete like, uh, yeah, well, I guess we should have had a garden. We just, all we did was bring a giant cathode ray tube TV out there. And sometimes we'd set up my Wii outside and we would play the Wii on the roof. A couple of real college students. But like, if it was bright out, like the sensors didn't work. So like, yeah, it was yeah. always fucked up when we were trying to play it. <laughs> Oh, we we did watch uh, Wizard People, Dear Reader out there one time. Oh, did we watch it on the TV or did we project it on the wall? I forget. I think we projected it. That was, yeah, it's probably not a TV thing. Yeah, that TV was pretty useless and incredibly heavy. But Wizard People, Dear Reader, a formative bit of entertainment that we all love so much. For those of you who are listening out there who have never seen it, Brad Neely, who I guess is better known for uh, Sclopio Pipio and his other TV shows on Adult Swim now, his rise to power is from one of our favorite forms of entertainment where he parodies the first Harry Potter film and re-narrates it with his own storyline and stuff. Highly recommend. But yeah, we had a couple parties out there. Wizard People, Dear Reader, which is, of course, where I got the name of my band from, that then got absorbed into the weeks only a few weeks later. But yeah, it was a nice little place, despite all like the, the framework of depression that was our year that year. I'm trying to remember... What's that? Just like some of the parties that we actually had there. Well, Mikey, when that was where I lived when we did that Beyonce cover band we had that year that absolutely slapped. Like We did like a, like a punk rock version of... Beyonce, where it was us, Mikey's sister Chrissy, our friend Lauren Adams, who else was it? Was B? Sarah Kelly. And Sarah Kelly, of course, was our our Beyonce for that show. And she is also staying on theme here, is not like a professional musician by any means, but she has an incredible voice. And we got her a headset mic just for this one basement show that we were playing as the Beyonce like punk cover band. And she fucking killed it. That night was one of my favorite nights of music that we ever had. And it was definitely the most compliments that I've ever gotten as a bass player because I think it was such a shock for so many basement punk kids to like see a really tight hip hop groove going on with otherwise like a pretty crusty sort of punk quality happening. (laughs) That yeah, Chrissy was living at Fifth and Mifflin, right? Yeah, she was on 
Fifth and Mifflin for most of our run in the ponies, I think. But we were practicing in my apartment in that giant bedroom. When you guys were practicing, it was also like the sickest I've ever been in my entire life. Like I was like dying in bed and having like fever dreams and stuff. And it was only interrupted by Chris playing bass super loud for like, uh, what was it? Put a ring on it. What's the name of that song? Oh, all the single ladies. Oh, all the single ladies. Yeah, and you had like a like a I don't even remember like a crazy envelope filter and some other stuff on yeah, it. Yeah, I had like a fucked up bass synth that was so aggressive sounding and like <laughs> absolutely inconsiderate that I was like blasting that thing while Martin like legitimately had a fever and was like barely able to maintain consciousness, and I was just busting out like the fattest sub octave synth that was so nasty sounding, having the time of my life, not thinking about my friend's well being for even half of a second. <laughs> You just have to really clear them out, you know? Use oh. all that low end to clear yeah, them out. Yeah, no, I mean, it works. Oh, yeah, I was just trying to knock your mucus loose. Yeah, exactly. Trying to get you healthy. I got better, so it probably worked. It was probably the key. You're welcome. See, there you go. Thank you. But yeah, I was just like pouring down sweat and just having fever dreams, staring up at the ceiling, and the only thing I could hear was the of the basin over and over again, because I, I feel like you guys were like trying to really nail the intro for some reason. Well, the trick with that song is that the syncopation is super weird. Like the way the groove feels, you think that the downbeat is like somewhere else in the measure than where it actually is, how she sings over it. So coming back from the break, we kept screwing it up. So we would just did it like over and over and over again, where we'd come to a dead stop. And then, she, you know, she would sing like the, oh, the single ladies, oh, the sing-. and then like we just, you know, try to catch it and then just like have my massive farty bass synth come back in. So I can only imagine the sporadic torture of like my thunderous farts, like just like rattling our, our tiny shitty apartment while you were trying to get some shut eye. Man, there I guess there were a couple bright spots that year. <laughs> For me. <laughs> I, like again, like I feel like all we did was laugh, even though like there was a lot of very dark times. Well, I remember before I, I actually got my hands on a Wii, or maybe it was right after I bought it, you went and bought like a two dollar video game system that also had like a light gun connection to it and you're like look i have my own Wii. we have the same thing <laughs> but like it was all like knockoff weird video games like it, it was like asteroids and like uh deck hunt like all kinds of weird garbage that wasn't a real video game that was a- adjacent to it wait asteroids deck hunt and they're all broken and none of them worked like i bought them i think i bought them a video game console for like five dollars from shopping bag. I think that's what it was. Yeah, it's like over a thousand games, and they were all just variations of ripping off Duck Hunt that didn't work at all. But we had a lot of fun trying to play it. Like somebody took the ROMs from a bunch of old like Nintendo games and then changed a couple of ones to zeros and vice versa. And they're like, it's a new game. It's like, no, it's just broken. That's what it is. You just gave me over a thousand broken games. It's like, what? This game's wow. called RoboCap. This sucks. Yeah. <laughs> Super Maria. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, that console was a pretty good metaphor for the life that we were living at that time. Close, close to glory. And everything was broken. Is it the same year we did the ugly sweater? Oh, was it? Was that later? The oh, ugly sweater yeah. Christmas party. yeah, yeah, yeah. Wait. Remind uh, me, remind me about that. I'm forgetting the details. Uh, I mean, that was just you, me, and Evan. We did no, that was a few years songs. later. Yeah. We only did the most abrasive 90s songs. 
and then Weezer covers of, of Christmas hymns. That's when we met Natasha. Right, right, right. Yeah, that, that was, was in like 2016. Time. What year? 2016. Yeah, it was much later. I think this yeah, this was, year, yeah. this this Corona <laughs> year has just like derailed everyone's sense of time. So it's kind of hard to like place anything in history anymore. Yeah, it's it's really is all a smear. Yeah, well, at the end of the year, I was like doing like tweets from the Super Weeks account to like announce that we're doing the podcast and doing all kinds of things. And I kept writing things like, looking forward to 2020. This coming 2020, we're going to be doing our podcast like every week. And I'm just like, after like 15 like separate things that I wrote out, I was like, oh, fuck, it's 2021. Like my mind was trying to delete 2020 from existence to just, I guess, hi- stuff that trauma away somewhere. We're just going to redo. That's all. Yeah, I'm, that's what I'm saying. My birthday didn't count this year. I'm going to be 32 next year. Hey, we're getting a do over. <laughs> Speaking of trying to place things in the timeline and also why I thought you were not only viable, but like the perfect option for playing bass on one of our songs, we have to harken back to when Evan and I first met Martin. We met him at the same time. We had a production class. Evan and I were music industry majors and Martin was an uh, entertainment arts management major at Drexel University. And there was an assignment for the course that we were in where the production team from the production class was assigned to produce a band that was selected by the university. Or I don't know how they picked them. Maybe they submitted somehow. And we were going to be teamed up with a person from the entertainment arts program, and they were going to act as the manager for that band for that semester. And uh, there was a, a gathering of us in a weird room that we never had a course in before, so it was like alien territory to Evan and I. Uh, Larry, uh, I'm blanking on his That's last Epstein. name. Oh, right. How could I forget that last name at this point in history? Larry Epstein, the professor, was <laughs> heading the class, and they were just like announcing like who we were paired off with, like as as the class went on, and they announced that Martin was our guy. But I think you weren't there when they said your name, and so like halfway into the class, you waltzed in with like a mid shin length winter coat and this glistening like silver topped cane that you had, and you just had this like swagger as you came into the room, and I was like. Who the fuck is this like 19 year old guy with a cane, like making the boldest entrance that I've ever seen? And I was absolutely <laughs> floored by you. And I was like, this is our guy. Like, I cannot wait to do all kinds of bullshit with this guy. This guy looks awesome. Uh, you have way over romanticized that. I was probably wearing a pea coat and I had the uh, wooden cane that um, they gave me at the emergency room after I blew out my knee and dislocated it and so i was i hobbled over probably like um <laughs> oh god what's his name uh the doctor behind jurassic park i probably hobbled over like him and like welcome house. to my it's not dr house like you it's not lupus and it's um, not Dr. Emmett Brown oh, Evan before you say that either. What was his I name? I don't even know who that what is. is. What is his name? I've seen that movie so many times, I can't remember. Oh, Emmett Brown's the one from uh, McFly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, he's the yeah, he's, he's uh, Christopher Lloyd. Evan, what's that movie called? <laughs> uh, Back to the Future. Oh, okay. yeah. You, you knew the name for real this time. Yeah, I just had to remember it so i said the first thing that came to my head evan didn't see that movie until 2020 until like two weeks ago <laughs> he called it the mcfly movie for months until we watched it which is why i just referred to it as mcfly dr malcolm dr yes. ian malcolm dr. Ian malcolm, malcolm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah that's his name in god's name do you think you are john hammond and i'm delighted to meet you finally in person yeah i, I kind of felt like a much poorer less accomplished version of him hobbling down the aisle being like welcome 
to my class. See, here's the thing is I, now I remember this and I'm like, oh yeah, that is how we met Martin for that class. But, and I'm sure Chris has told me that story like 45 times in the past week. I was like, where did I meet Martin? I feel like Martin just kind of appeared, probably sat down next to me and we probably just got along and that's how we became friends and then roommates. (laughs) What a bizarrely mundane, fictionalized version of a thing I told you the true version of (laughs) moments before. I know, but that's what I was thinking. I was like, yeah, I probably just like sat next to Martin at school and we were probably getting along about something. To be fair, Nard, I don't remember how you and I met. I was trying to remember that. Like, my earliest memory is when you asked me to move in. Oh, that's right. ASL. ASL, baby. Yeah. (laughs) I ASL'd you because they made a music industry online Facebook thing in the early days of Facebook. And all of the people were in the group. And there were, you know, we decided to jam, me, you, and Smeeds. Yes, yes. And then we jammed. Do you remember the name of that band? It probably had sex in it. We only rehearsed once, but we had a name for it. It was a uh, sexual apostle. Yeah, there it is. I don't think that means Whoa. anything, but that's what we—that's what we called ourselves sexual that night. Sexual apostle. It was. I remember it being a very fun jam, but I also remember I played drums yep. and Mike played guitar and you played bass, and we at that time all had very different influences. Mike was like a blues rock guy. You played like pretty much strictly funk bass. And I had only ever played in like punk rock and ska bands, so it was probably a weird time. I remember having a blast. And I probably couldn't keep up with either of you guys. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. I was probably like, God plays weird beats, here I go. We were all counting to four at the same time, so I think it worked out okay. <laughs> It was definitely a fun time. That's a good point. I remember because I, I picked you guys up from the train station, and when you got out of mm-hmm. my car, you dove across my lap and kicked my rearview mirror and knocked the shit out of it. I do remember that now. That was when my parents lived in Phoenixville. With my one and a half hour train <laughs> commute to Drexel oh. every day. Oh, uh, sorry. <laughs> I've done worse things to your stuff. I'm sure we're even mm, at this point. I stepped on your ukulele. Oh, no, it was my mandolin. Yeah, you, and we still use that mandolin to record stuff, uh, even in the last few weeks. But yeah, you cracked that bad boy. Still cracked. Sounds great. Yeah, great sounding instrument. Not my fault. That was just in a, yeah, it was Peter's fault. It was in a pile of his clothes on the floor. Yeah, our, our other roommate, room. uh, sophomore year of college, borrowed my mandolin and just like hid it in a pile of laundry that I guess Evan, I mean, it's probably comfortable on your bare feet to just step on some dirty laundry. You know, you wanted a comfy little stroll through the pile of his uh, clothing refuse that he left around the room. (laughs) Look, here's the thing, is we had an actual deck attached to my room, so I would have to walk through Peter's side of the room to get to the deck, and Peter's side of the room was just a pile of clothes. Sometimes you can't not step in the pile of clothes, and unfortunately I happened to step on the mandolin under the clothes. Yeah, it was a booby trap, man. I do sort of remember this being like a little bit of a big deal for a day or two when that happened. I mean, I'm sure Evan stepped on something else that upset me when we lived together. Because I think that was a year before we met you, Martin, and that specific one happened. Yeah, that was. There was, I mean, I think a lot of things got stepped on and sat on. Oh, absolutely. Like, so it might not have been the mandolin. Evan's got a couple of 16-ounce steaks for feet, so he's just like crushing things <laughs> as he like Godzilla's his way through life. You know, what can I say? He has a similar scream to Godzilla, too. <laughs> And hot sauce breath. That's actually a good segue because I, I got a package in the mail today with all of my super weak shit. Oh, nice. uh, I got my vinyl and my shirt and the hot sauce and I tried the hot sauce and when I just opened it up and there was like a little clot at the top, I was like, oh, I'll just shake it up and you know, I'll just clear it out and I'll just have a little taste. 
Cloud didn't go away, it just collected more. And so I was like, there's this huge bubbling thing coming out of the top. So I just like put my mouth on it. I was like, oh, this is so great. And just started crying immediately. <laughs> it is so good, but it was very, very hot. Oh, I'm glad you like it. Thank you very much for the, what is it? The the, the pizza? Pizza punks. Pizza punks. Mm-hmm. Yes. Designed, the, the label is designed by our friend Ben Roush, who is the designer of our video game Teenage Blob that came out this past year. So if you want to, this is like a moment for plugs here. If you want to keep your multimedia Super Weeks experience going, you can also play our video game and listen to our EP that's uh, associated with the hot sauce that Martin was just talking about. Don't forget to visit weeksaucephilly.com for your hot sauce needs. Thank you for the plug. I didn't even have to do it. I went to the website earlier today. I was like, this is so good. I got I to gotta catch them all. Just wait. Sorry, Chris. I totally stepped on you. I'm sorry. What were you saying? No, as, as we mentioned, uh, uh, Evan has stepped on everything I own, so I'm quite comfortable with it. Yeah. Oh, what are, you, what are you sipping on there? What is that? I just killed a bottle of scotch, um, and I'm very sad about it, but it's okay because <laughs> I've got a bottle of rye. So There we go. That's my dude. But I'm not going to plug that because you guys are going to make money off of that. So <laughs> fuck them. Hey, I mean, we'll advertise anything. If any advertisers out there are looking for six more people to listen, hear about your product, feel free to advertise with our podcast. What are you talking about? We're going to have more than six listeners one day. Yeah, I think that's unfair because I loved the first episode and then I listened to the Cat Park episode today while I was working. I was like laughing and, and, and having a good time while I was doing ones and zeros. Like, you know, it's it's... It's fun. It's going to catch on. Not this episode, probably, but um, you know, when you get some of your actual musician friends involved, I'm sure it's it's really it's it's going to be gangbusters. So much self depreciating, De- deprecating. It's deprecating. The word's deprecating, not depreciating. Yeah, I, I think we've all been depreciating over the course of the past year, though. So that's applicable in its own way, Evan. My value's gone down. Martin, don't sell yourself short. You never know, like, some, like, fucking LED head out there, some Jumbotron tech head might be like, Martin Buckley of the ones and zeros? My dude on the ones and zeros? Of course I'm going to scope this episode. Get those sweet deets on the old uh, Jumbotronage. That or a very confused Jeff Bridges fan might get really excited about Tron and find their way here, too. Yeah, it's the biggest Tron movie. Martin, what do you remember... About living at the kingdom. Ah, uh, yes. The Sprinkle Kingdom. Have you guys talked about this yet at all? No, not on this podcast. Is this Genesis? I think I think maybe maybe we should talk about Genesis of Sprinkle Kingdom before I get into my brief involvement. Well, yeah, that's, that's fair. Let's set the scene. The Genesis of the Sprinkle Kingdom is also tied to my nickname, Doc Bag, in, in its own way, where it came from a collection of people, some of them still in music, some of them not. But the name Sprinkle Kingdom specifically came from John Bacon who is known now for doing cool 3D world. If you're familiar with the, those videos on the internet, some wacky animation that's like challenging and funny. I think he ended up on Adult Swim too for a little bit there. Really? I missed this somehow. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. He was, I think he had a stint on Adult Swim doing cool 3D world. That's yeah. great. Oh my God. You yeah. got to reach out to Johnny about that. That's so cool. Yeah. I hope he's on the roster. He better be. Oh, he will. I'm sure we either collaborated with or will collaborate with him when we finish up some of this stuff. Or we could do some secret skateboards episodes, too. Ooh, skateboards. Yeah, that's part of Sprinkle Kingdom, too, so we'll, we'll cover all that. But Brian Glassett, Trey, Rachel, who else lived there initially? Did I cover everybody? Max. Oh, and Max, our Max. secret roommate, Max. Max. Who lived in his own secret, like, crow's nest room in the back of the house where he didn't really interact with everybody, and we kind of forgot that he lived there a lot of the time. But he was a truly funny guy. But then over the years, as, like, people trickled out, our friend Kyle Press moved in and he uh, 
He's got a bunch of great bands. He's in the Love Club. He's in uh, his, his his project's called The Impressionist. Meredith Haynes moved in for a bit. She's out in Chicago now. Jeff Knight. Uh, I'm sure there's a bunch oh of people that are, I'm missing. A lot. There's a lot who cycled through. But then also Martin moved in. Me. Oh, yeah, and I was Evan, there. I, I, I forgot you were there for a, such a short yes. stint. Yeah, it was only like maybe three months. Martin, I lived. W- you lived there when I lived there, right? Yeah, but I feel like you were on tour like almost the entire time that you technically lived there. Like that was not your apartment. That was your storage unit. Yes. I also remember living there because one time I left the windows open and this, a storm rained sideways into my room and destroyed my Casio SK-1 because all of the rain decided to just hit that one part of my room housing my Casio SK-1. Very sad. That wait, did you? But I did live there. Do you live up on like the fourth floor? No, I second lived floor front in room. The room Meredith took. Mm-hmm. Oh, Meredith took your room, right? Yep, 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 yep. Yeah, I lived in this. Meredith moved in after I moved out. That's right. I moved out after we graduated college. I only lived there from when I got back from London studying abroad to when I. No. Did I live there for a year? You lived there for a little while, yeah. I lived there for a year, like a, almost a year. We made so many burritos there, dude. We made so many burritos. Yeah, we'd make burritos all the time. Oh, right, and we made Johnny and I Kingdom wanted to Swap. create a salsa company. Yeah, we. it was great. Oh, yeah, I remember burrito day. Burrito day was every day. Well, no, it wasn't every day. My doc bag guacamole. I'd make doc guac for the burritos. Oh, yeah, that was yeah, so yeah. good. You'd, you'd whip out your guac and, like, somebody would make beans, somebody would make Don't rice. Don't say it that I, way. <laughs> whip out my guac? Are you trying to give me a risk? Yeah. <laughs> I would suck in your guac every time you made it, man. Oh it was my amazing. God. Oh my God. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> yeah, it was, I mean, it, that, that was fantastic. Cause yeah, like Evan, you'd like bring out like nine or 10 hot sauces and probably put them all on your, your burrito. And like everybody would bring something to the table and make it happen. Actually, I got to say that we mostly stuck with creamy, which was what we called Valentina. Mm -hmm. Um, But also, honestly, John probably got me into making hot sauce because John would like ferment peppers and shit in the cabinet above the stove, like would make little mason jars of like pepper mash and ferment them and shit. And like, I started doing that with him. And that's actually probably when I started making hot sauce the first time was because of Burrito Day and John. Oh, okay. I also remember there was a, a deep fryer. I don't know if this was um, Cat Park's deep fryer, but there was a deep fryer that was sitting on our counter for like a while that somebody had used and basically was going rancid and sat there for like six months. <laughs> no, but that checks out. Oh my God. I forgot what a nightmare that kitchen really was. I remember there was a time when I went to toast. I was so lazy that I wouldn't even put them like in the on like a pan. I would put Boca burgers in the toaster or just regular toaster where you push the thing down. And there was a day where I couldn't get them to go all the way in. And so I kept jamming the button over and over again. And finally, I was like, there's something blocking it. There's probably food stuck in here. And I took the Boca Burgers out and I looked in and I saw something like gray in the bottom. And I was like, is this like a big pile of mold? And I looked closer and I saw a little foot. And it was a mouse had died in the bottom of the toaster. And in like seconds before, I was just like jamming the toaster mechanism on it over and over again. And I was like, Oh my God, I, I was, I almost <laughs> threw up and I just like threw my oh, food so out. Cool. Like I, yeah. I, I didn't eat for the rest of the day. I felt so sick. And then also there was a time where I was making myself a sandwich in the kitchen and I heard this noise behind me. It was like coming from above me. So I turned around and looked and all of a sudden the ceiling collapsed 
and there was this giant flap of sheetrock that swung down at me, and all of these rocks and all of this busted shit just like fell out of the ceiling, and water poured out, and it just destroyed the kitchen in like half of a second. And I was just like, "What the I fuck remember am this. I looking at?" <laughs> oh yeah, I remember that too. There was a big hole there for a while. Well, no. So I, the way I remember it was that you guys called me down because you guys called me house dad. And they were like, oh my God, there's like a, a pipe leaking. The, the ceiling fell in. Like, what can we do? And Chris, yeah, I think you got on the phone with Bob. Yeah, well, landlord and Bob. I went downstairs to try to like figure something out. And Bob was like, I'm on my way to my kid's basketball game. Like, is it urgent? And you were like, I don't know. It seems to be yeah. raining inside <laughs> of the kitchen. Does that seem urgent to you? And he was like, you could hear him rolling his eyes over the phone. He was like, okay. Fine. I will stop raining inside of my own house. He told me how to like cut off the water and then like drove over to assess the situation. I was like, yeah, pipe broke. Uh, anyway, um, got to catch the second half of my kid's game. I'll catch you later. And just like disappeared. We're like, what do we do about water? Like we don't have water. <laughs> we also had the, the toilet that was just broken on the first floor for like most of the time I lived there. There was a toilet? Oh, right next to the basement. Yeah. We just closed that room and didn't let anybody in there because yeah, that was not never safe. Worked. Yeah. We had a, yeah, we had a show one night. I think it was like a fundraiser and somebody went in there and flushed like every single paper towel in the house down the toilet and then it didn't work anymore. I tried snaking it myself. I think Bob hired somebody and they were like, it's irreparably broken. It's you may as well drop a grenade in. It's it's done. Yeah, it was done. Oh my god, man, that was like that was the last show house I guess I lived in. I mean, the warehouse doesn't necessarily count, I guess, as a show house. But I loved Sprinkle Kingdom shows, man. I loved back in college, like those days where it was just like a massive fucking party, and like all your friends would come and just like. You know, it would suck to clean afterwards. Your whole entire house would be covered in beer and fucking sweat. But man, was it fun. Like, we have those videos of the skateboards and Bonjour playing with Johnny Foreigner, where the cop comes in and shuts the show down in the, after watching a few songs. And uh, man, the best, I think probably one of my favorite shows of all time ever was, was it Halloween or New Year's when Saber Pulse? came and like John performed a set and Saber Pulse performed a set and it was like a giant dance party in the basement. And it went until like four in the morning. Four in the morning. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That was Halloween. That was so amazing. They were playing that genre called Witch House, which is where they just took pop songs and slowed them down to like nearly half speed and then put new electronic drums under them. And so people were just like dancing completely fucked up, just like to this bizarre sludgy music until 4 a.m. I lived on the, I guess it was the fourth floor. That was a really tall house. But fortunately, I, I got to escape around 2 a.m. Like away from how loud that music was. I can't believe that wasn't the night where the cops got called on us. Because that, that shit was out of control. We only got the cops called on us once, as far as I know. No, I we had a couple noise complaints. But we, we usually meet him at the door. That was the only time a cop, the, uh, the Johnny Farner show, was the only time a cop entered the house because of a noise complaint. Because it was a Tuesday. And that was the only thing was we had that show on a Tuesday because they where were they playing were they at Johnny Brenda's or that like, was the or, that was not the Los Campesinos yeah they tour. did a show or Johnny Brenda's yeah, yeah okay yeah, yeah so it was a smaller show at Johnny Brenda's that was Los Camps yeah that was the Los Camp tour because they like I, I heard that Los Camps was going to come stay with us and I got really excited and then they never showed up and I got less excited <laughs> but that was the beauty of that show for Johnny Farner because for one they don't really have house shows like that in the UK. So they were really, because even though they played at Johnny Brenda's, like they specifically asked Evan 
even though he was in London at the time, to set them up a house show in Philadelphia because they wanted to play a real American house show. And so they were like, this band that came from overseas was so excited to play our shitty West Philly basement, like our filthy basement. Well, that would have been their second show because they played uh, B&D. Yeah, this was when we met Ben. That's right. Yes, this was the second time. At this point, Brian had set up his sculpture on the wall in the basement. Do you remember that? Where it was all like ripped up pieces of cardboard and long pieces of twine that he made like vaguely into a face shape that was on this, the one wall of the basement. And we walked <laughs> down with there and it's like, what? What is this? And he's like, oh, that that's my art. And he's like, all right, good enough. And then it's like over time, like more twine and cardboard kind of migrated through the house until there was just like a bunch of accent walls that had like weird trash art on it throughout our house, which I think only sold the vibe of a weird basement show to Johnny Foreigner even more at that point. I mean, I feel like that show, like the skateboards playing and like, I'm pretty sure you got very drunk, Chris, and we're just like laying down. Playing oh no, I guitar. wasn't drinking at that time. Oh, you're thinking of yours. That's a, that's a story for another time when we have Peter on. Yeah. Just a quick aside back when I finally started drinking again, when I was maybe 22 or 23, some other kids who were living at Sprinkle Kingdom at that time kept calling the house Sprinkle Kingdom, even though none of the original members live there. And I played a show with Cold Fronts and Peter, and we were paid members of that band. <laughs> but that night was like a night where it didn't look like they were going to make any money. And so what they would do any night where they weren't going to make enough money to pay us, they would buy Peter and I a case of beer to split. And because they could tell so early on that night they weren't going to make any money, they bought us the case before the show. And so Peter and I, before we even took the stage split an entire case of beer, which is a very rare occurrence. Martin, you can attest to this. I'm not a drinker. And so it all went directly to my head. And then my head went directly to the floor during our set because I couldn't stand up. And so I play the rest of the set laying down and I would turn all of my, my effects pedals on and off with my hand from the floor whenever I had to like switch an overdrive on or something. <laughs> and it was probably one of the coolest sets I've played in my life. I, I think those kids really thought I was awesome, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa, look at that cool guy being drunk. Yeah, exactly. Martin, uh, what do you remember from the shows at, at the Kingdom? That is a terrible question to ask me because I spent a lot of my time on the back porch, like smoking cigarettes and drinking 40s and hanging out and talking to people. Yeah, if that's what you remember, that's great. Those are That's the best part. I kind of felt like, like I did a lot of house prep prior to the shows. Like there was, uh, I don't know if you lived in a house during this era, but like I, I installed locks, like padlocks. I put like padlock calipers on all of the bedroom doors because we got robbed one night. And I think this might've been after you moved out. And so every, Oh, I don't, re- I don't even remember this. We got, you guys might've been away on, yeah, actually, yeah, you might've been away on tour with the ponies. Somebody had like money stolen from their room, and I think like a Wii or something like got stolen, and also like a TV remote, which is like just kind of a dick move. That's just inconvenience. That's that's very rude. Nah, man, I guarantee you that just got eaten by the couch. Well, <laughs> maybe, um, but it was like a bunch of shit went missing in one night. Like somebody's like, "Yeah, I lost a bunch of money," and somebody's like, "Yeah, my, the Wii from my room went like is gone," and like we very blatantly got robbed. I don't know if it was one event or multiple sporadic, you know, people just being like, oh, I'm going to take $50. And somebody else was like, I'm going to house shows, man. I had a bass amp that went missing at that time, and I could never figure out when it would have gone missing. I I had like a solid state Fender Bassman 500, I think is the model. For years, I wondered about it. I forgot about it until this moment. 
I wonder if it disappeared in one of those heists. I lost music equipment. I'm not even a musician. Like I lost like yeah, XLRs. Who cares about those? I lost microphones. I've lost you know several things in that house. They just like disappeared. So I put like lock calipers on all of the bedroom doors, and I had all the keys in my pocket. If like Mary was like, I need to go to my room, I was like, okay, and like unlock the door. But also about every third time we had a show, which was. Every two weeks, I guess. So I think we had about nine or ten shows a month or something. So it's like every third show, guaranteed, I would lock the keys in my room, and then I have to have to kick my own door down. Oh, I remember that. <laughs> yeah. the keys I remember you doing that for sure. I remember you having to pick locks all the fucking time. <laughs> yeah, because I remember to lock everything down. I just remember to grab the keys, so I'd have to like my door had so many holes in it from me a kicking it in and b just all the the, the screws like flying out of it too. But I felt like after that, like I was very much door security and I was like, kind of like watching on the backyard, like looking out for riffraff. And there was one night and I think it was maybe a little black rain cloud show or something like you guys had just gotten an album done. It was post ponies pre super weeks or pre weeks actually. But you guys had like had like a, a fairly major, like album release party that we we're having at the house. You guys were also like, I think trying to save up money for the road. And so I was literally standing at the back door, hustling people for money. I was holding a bucket and like <laughs> shaking people's faces and be like, Hey, you got some money for the band? Like you come to see the band. You want to give something to the band? Like, come on. and it was like getting really aggressive with people. And I remember this dude walks up and he's about to just walk in the back door. And I was like, Hey, do you want to give some money to the band? Like, do you want to support the band? And he goes, I mean, I literally just mixed their album and it was Ryan Schwab. And I was like, oh shit. Like <laughs> I felt so bad. Cause I was like being really mean and aggressive towards him. Be like, you should give these guys money. He's like, he's also our professor too. <laughs> he, he mastered the album. Yeah. He was super cool about it. I was not. And so I kind of was like weird bouncer asshole most of the time we live. like I, I went down to like saw some shows every once in a while like i did see some johnny foreigner that was awesome but i kind of like i don't know why like i i think it was just because everything was so loud it was like i can be on the, the back porch and still hear everything and it's great it's so crazy i feel like i mean i do remember that collecting donations was super difficult at a lot of our shows because you know we were all college kids and like Unfortunately, all of the college kids that came to the shows would prioritize buying 40s and six packs and 30 racks or whatever over paying the bands. And it like as a touring musician, I guess that kind of always bummed me out. So I do appreciate you, you know, Martin, whether or not you were aggressive or not in trying to get bands some money so that they could, you know, make it to the next city. I always appreciate that because it is tough on the road. It is really tough. You show up to a show and Sprinkle Kingdom often had really good turnouts. And, you know, there would be like 40, 40 people or so in the basement at most shows. And like, I know that doesn't sound like a lot, but for a basement show for a no-name band, like, that's pretty good. Yeah, that's, I would have a great time. It feels like the basement's packed, you know, like. It always felt pretty full. It was always a really nice time. And like, it sucks that sometimes you could only give the band like 40 bucks because only six people paid, you know, they were like, here's like seven bucks, here's 10 bucks. And like, you know, we would only ask for whatever anyone could give or five bucks, you know, five bucks, not mandatory, but like 
give whatever you can. And like, it was nice when we could get more than that, but like, it was tough, man. Uh, Not to mention the only place for merchandise to get set up was on top of our laundry machine in the back of the basement. So it wasn't like uh, the best place for marketing yes. for people to like, uh, often people would just like walk right by and just like run into the sweaty crowd on the other end of the basement. There's also like a lot of overflow into like the weird laundry slash birthing room before you got to like the main basement. And so it's like, if there's a bunch of people like weren't there early, to get to the front of our stage, which is what, like six, eight inches tall. They would just be like moshing in the back. So it was, there was nothing getting done back there. Except and it for was getting punched pitch in black face. in that basement too. Like we oh, yeah. lit the stage area with like Christmas lights and stuff, but there, was, there wasn't much that we could do without killing the vibe of lighting the rest of the basement. And you bring up a good point with like how the layout was so bizarre, where when you first walked down the stairs, there was like a very small room that had our washer and dryer and then a wall with a door that led to the rest of the basement. But just beyond that door, there was like a weird little horse corral next to it where it looked like somebody kept a horse down there. Like it looked like a, like a small horse stable. And that's, of course, where we like had all the bands stash their stuff. And then as you walk deeper in, Brian's weird art that he had on the wall and then the six-inch stage. So it was like such a single level that everybody was on, especially thinking about like those like the chiptune shows that we have in the basement, like the kind of DJ shows. People were just like so tight up against like so many people were packed in and it was like so sweaty. It must have been such a miserable experience. Like honestly. No, it was awesome. Everyone was dancing and having a great time. It was so much fun. We were also like 20, you know? It like mm -hmm. now we're old and cranky, but like we were 20. We were like, yeah, this is fucking awesome. Everyone's wasted. Everyone's dancing on everyone. Like in not in like, you know, a weird, unsafe way. Like I felt like it was a generally very safe space. I agree. Yeah, I will say that was the beauty of it. Like, it was always a, like a good kind of community space, and we never had any any incidents there. Yeah, it felt great. One of my favorite things, speaking of making it feel like a, like a welcoming space, like, as we started to have more and more shows, we would leave a television on our kitchen table facing the back door where we would let everybody in to see the shows, and we had a constant rotation. Speaking of uh, Dr. Ian Malcolm, a constant rotation of Jurassic Park VHS that would be on, and then a couple of the Batman animated series tapes that I had, when one would run out, we'd just like swap in a Batman tape, swap in Jurassic Park, just like back and forth. So there was this constant greeting <laughs> of the greatest film of all time, Jurassic Park, and then the greatest superhero of all time, Batman from the animated series. Batman the animated series, perfect television show. Highly recommend everybody go back to watch that. But it is, is it as good as the Legend of Zelda animated series. Uh, nothing will top that. Have you ever seen that, Martin? Nothing will top that. No, there's an animated series of Legend of Zelda? When, where, how? Gotta watch it. It's from the late 90s, I think. And it's like a bizarre sitcom. Because first of all, Link, not only does he speak, he is just yapping up a storm through that entire series. <laughs> and his catchphrase that he says at least once per episode is, Excuse me, princess. Where he gets really salty with Zelda. Oh man, it's and it's amazing. like after he defeated Ganon, he's living in the castle. Yeah, it's it's the it's such a bizarre cartoon. It's, it's nothing like the Link character in the game. It's like where who who gave Link this personality because it's nothing like any Link personality that's ever happened ever. And the only thing that I've ever seen that's close to it is if you've ever watched Inuyasha, the American, the English dubs of Inuyasha fucking just sound like Link. And I'm just like, my God, who is this character? There's actually, you should look it up on YouTube sometime. The Excuse Me Princess Supercut. It's every instance of him saying it in the show, just cut out of context. It's one of the best 
two and a half minutes of it's YouTube good. comedy. We're going to take a break here for a All second, right. but we'll be right back. We're back. Um, can I point something out real quick? Yeah, dude. I don't think we sure. actually explained at all what Sprinkle Kingdom was. I think we just talked about old memories. I don't think we actually ever said. Oh, it was. Oh, it was a, a burrito eating stomping ground for Smash Brothers. <laughs> that was it. We did have yeah, some serious Smash Brothers tournaments there too. I, for, I forgot. Yeah. Sorry. I'm sorry. Keep but- go. I'm sorry. That was rude. <laughs> It was a basement venue that had a bunch of guys living above it, and also some ladies. A nice mixed group of people. It rocked. Yeah, and it was actually born of like two great houses on Locust Street initially, where I lived with Nick Finelli, Kyle Graham, Brian Glassett, who wound up moving in with us, and Trey, and then John, and who else was from his house moved? Was it just Johnny who moved from his house? Max. Oh, and Max was there. Max. I keep forgetting Max. But yeah, those two homes combined to create the Sprinkle Kingdom. And Rachel, you didn't live it on Locust Street with us, but she moved into Sprinkle Kingdom. Man, it's really wild to just like very specifically look back on that time period now. I'm not much for reminiscing. I don't I don't do it frequently, but this podcast has really specifically put a like a, a lens on these things. And that was a very cool time. Like I feel like the DIY scene in Philadelphia was, at least for our experience, was at its peak. And it was so cool to just like have a show house that was like a like a well-known show a well-attended show house in particular because that gave us the opportunity to be a microcosm of the scene where we were creating these shows with lineups of like really diverse acts like more indie rock based bands and then dancey bands and then like a dj and like all kinds of different like uh that's a pretty bland summation i made there but like a very diverse group of, of, of bands per show and also, it gave us a chance to just kind of inject our own weirdness into shows like that Johnny Farner show where our band, The Skateboards, played. Martin, I don't know if you remember the the costuming that we did at that time, but I wore one of John Bacon's Hawaiian shirts that he had. And Johnny's like probably 6'2", right? And I'm 5'6". So that thing hung down low on me, and I wore just a Speedo under it. And it was covered in jellyfish. Johnny, I think, just wore orange top to bottom. He had like an orange beanie on, orange tank top, orange pants. He looks like a Crayola crayon. But my favorite part of our costuming for the night was Evan took off his shirt. All he wore was he had a tiny panda hat that had panda ears on it, a pair of sunglasses, and then it probably took like two or three Sharpies, but we just wrote across his chest, his furry, furry chest, the word fuck in big block <laughs> letters. And while he was playing drums in the skateboards, he would only, he would refer to himself as the unstoppable party. That was his name. <laughs> so I remember that. <laughs> a, a tour de force performance from Evan that night. What can I tell you? It was you? very cool. And then later on, I actually used all the photos from that evening to make the skateboards OkCupid okay dating profile. The only band I think ever in existence that had a dating profile for the whole band. Not true. Oh, you, really, Mikey? There had to be. I mean, think about how many people there are. There had to be whole band dating. All I'm saying is find me some evidence of that. I need confirmation. Because I know the skateboards had a dating profile. I, I haven't seen the arcade fire on Hinge or Bumble or something. So prove it. But that was, yeah, that was a magical time. I mean, like we made, that's where we met Ben, who we mentioned before, who's part of Team Laserbeam, who made the video game Teenage Blob. And we've been friends with him for a decade now. Yeah, really creative environment. Because for most of this podcast, we're going to be talking about Big Mamas, where Mikey lived for a while and Evan lived for a long time. 
and that we, you know, had our, our studio out of eventually. But that sort of creative environment was just something that always followed us. And Sprinkle Kingdom was definitely one of those as well. I can remember even like Ryan Schwab would come over to work on records with Johnny at our house too. Oh yeah. We had that whole jam room. Like we, it, it was a nine bedroom house. Y'all remember that? Like mm-hmm. yes. there were definitely not nine people ever living there at one time. So we had that whole room in the back that we just jammed in. There was eight people at one point. Yeah, there was eight people really? at one point. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah we came close. Kyle press moved into the fourth floor. I don't know who else took that back room. I also remember that back room, like it had so much rain damage that like you literally, if you weren't sitting in your desk chair, it would just roll to the back corner like it was in a drag race. It was just, and like the whole room was so fucked up. I like every once in a while, since I was on the third floor, I'd be like, well, let's go up to four and see what's going on. And, you know, walk up there and there would be that one room that had, I think like a water heater and then just a ton of keyboards in it for some reason, like a bunch of broken keyboards. Like, oh, are you talking about the flubber room? No, 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 the flubber room. There was, um, so when you walk up the stairs, I think there was a bathroom almost immediately right there on the landing. Mm-hmm. There was Kyle's room. There was the flubber room. There was the back room where J chaps lived. And then between that, there was like a room that literally just had like broken keyboards in it. That's all it was. That was Kyle's room. Yeah. I think that no. was where Kyle lived. He li- <laughs> I think that's where he, Kyle lived. He at least used that as his library where he would just like pull out weird keyboards and make impressionist records. But also just to clarify for the listener too, what we were referring to as the, the flubber room, this was a staple of any home that John Bacon lived during that era where at some point, I think when he was in high school, maybe somebody had given him when they were cleaning out a movie theater, 40 some odd flubber posters of a close-up shot of Rob Williams face and a little flubber creature dancing in front of him. And so we used those posters to, to wallpaper that entire room. So it was covered, every inch of it was covered with flubber posters wall to wall. And it was a tiny room with like a heater in it. But we would go in there just to hang out and just vibe with the multi Robins and uh, all of our flubber pals. It was just big enough for a futon and a TV. And I think that was it. And then there was like, you could sneak behind it to go to the weird balcony that we had on the, uh, on the fourth floor. Oh yeah, we had a balcony up there that had iron bars blocking the front of it. So it felt like a weird sort of prison perch or something like a watchtower. It was like in case we got robbed by ninjas or something. Like who's coming up to the fourth? Floor? Yeah, I don't know why the iron bars. That's a really good point. It's a little <laughs> excessive. Come on, guys. Well, uh, gentlemen, should we keep talking about sprinkles? Should we talk about, I guess, more of the genesis of the Super Weeks? I do think I might have a unique viewpoint on this in that like I was there from Genesis and I kind of kept popping up at the shows. Oh, yeah. You know, that's actually it's, that's an interesting premise. Yeah. Martin, tell us how you saw, as you were saying, the genesis of the Super Weeks. How, how did we come together? I mean, well, honestly, there was no coming together. It was, it was more of an amalgam of various people every week. And again, I, I thought that was super ambitious. The fact that you guys were like trying to write the music or write the lyrics and, and, and completely produce something and get everything together in a week, week after week after week while you were in Dear Reader, while you were in, was it Velvet Eldest, while you were in The Ponies, while you were working with other bands, and then also, like, recording on the side, too. Like, it was too much. I remember, yeah, not believing at all that that you guys had enough time to do a song a week with 
the 18 bands you were each in, and then also you guys had your jobs, and then also you guys were recording people. That's probably why we never finished it all. <laughs> That's probably <laughs> yeah, why. Yeah. I mean, we got over the course of three years, we were able to put up 26 songs on our band camp. The first go round was about 16, and there were about three or four that never made it up. I don't really remember what happened. I mean, did we start touring or something? Because I know we didn't... Well, I guess the Ponies were still a band at this point. Like, we weren't done yet. At this specific point, I had quit the Ponies by the time that we released this song. But I I definitely wasn't out of it. And I also remember, Mikey, I don't know if you remember this, but do you remember... Like, we recorded... We re-recorded John Denver for... Uh, what eventually only became the Tenderheart EP. Do you remember doing that? I do. Because we did that. We used to play that song. The Dangerous Ponies used to play that song. Yeah, no, it's yeah, it's coming back to me. I listen to that occasionally. I mean, it's been a minute, but... Yeah, but I yeah. just... Re- I guess maybe the Ponies, maybe we started recording that or something and why this ended up slowing down or whatever. Yeah, then I, I left on tour for three months with Buried Beds at that time, too. That might have contributed to it slowing down a little bit. Yeah. By the time that we had released like Sip of the Season by that point. So that was later on in the run. Sip of the Seat? What? Oh, whatever that song was called. This, the soda song I wrote. What, is, what did I wind up actually calling it when we released it? Real Sugar. Real Sugar. That's that's the one. No, I, I think like genuinely up until like the day you left, you guys were still pretty close to like getting a song out a week. I think we did a pretty good job. It was definitely an ambitious project. I don't know. I lived at the warehouse with all these people. I I wanted to play with all these people and I felt like it was something to motivate everyone because the winter is a hard time to get motivated and I just like wanted to play music with all these amazing people around me and write songs and I had a million other songs that the ponies weren't going to use for their record and like you know I was playing in Mike Bell in the movies and Mike wrote those songs and I don't know this was my outlet I was like let's you know I mean my whole thing with songs anyway is it's like Here's a song I wrote, like, let's just get a bunch of people who I think would do a good job playing on this song who are around, or, like, let's just get whoever's around and write a song. Like, I just had ideas. I had tons and tons of ideas, and I just wanted to create, and that's, you know, that's what it was. It gave me an excuse to have, like, a weekly creative session with my friends, which, like, I felt was much needed at that time for me and everyone I lived with and whomever was around, and it was a lot of fun. I mean, during that time, we also did... Uh, you know, we recorded the song Muscle Dump for a different one of our projects. Um, <laughs> great song. I and uh, that, song is great. that was just like a bunch of <laughs> us messing around with the, the Tascam 388 in my bedroom. Like, half these songs, we recorded the drums in my bedroom. Yeah, Muscle Dump, I think actually that predated the Song A Week project, right? And I feel like that, that was our initial idea. We were jokingly going to do like a two-piece blues rock song every week because we could just, like, crap it out. But then once we wrote the first song, we were like, yeah, this isn't going to be funny after this first dumb thing that we did. So, like, I don't want to do this every week. But then that's quickly transitioned into the actual Song a Week project, which, honestly, like, some of these songs are so cool. Like, I didn't remember part of it might be nostalgia, but, like, listening back to this, like, some of the arrangement of this was wild. The fact that I played saxophone on it, which nobody would ask me to do if it wasn't for us, like, doing this our own little weird project for ourselves. I'm not a saxophone player. And then I also, like, heard a bunch of, like, harmony layers that I forgot that we did. Like, this was a great place to just experiment, which I, I, I really hope that more artists get a chance to just kind of, like, fool around like this with 
with other people and just like get kind of different creative tastes and what they're doing because it, it did so much to kind of generate the unique angles that we take on a lot of arrangements and things and the, and the, the kind of layering that we do on our own records that isn't necessarily for you to pick out those individual things but it's so you can get this very special unique sort of textural experience in what is otherwise like a pretty normal pop rock song it was very much a learning process man it was very much like we would try different mic techniques for recording things we would record the drums differently oftentimes we recorded the drums in my bedroom as i said before you know we were making do with what we had and what we could use and trying to advance our craft and just like understand our our tools a little bit better and i think it was a good excuse to do that i've got a question guys i don't know the answer to this because we're talking a lot about the old days and then I left and that's why we're talking about the old days because I don't have the information. But what was the transition between it being a song of a week side project where you guys were still like really involved in your other bands to where it's, we are now a touring band and we're going to open up for Taking Back Sunday and like this is a real serious thing. Like what was that transition? Did somebody call you, like, or did you just have to like build it from the ground up, and it like kind of took off? I think it was the promise of free shoes that powered this entire thing. Where we went to record that first EP at Converse Rubber Tracks, because at that time Converse was doing a promotion for for small bands where they would give you free shoes and a free day of recording at a really nice studio in New York. And like Evan just like picked six songs that he felt good about. We like arranged them over the course of like maybe I got how many rehearsals did we even have for that, Nard? One. We had one rehearsal for that record. I showed that record to Eric and Emily at Capajiro, and that's how they heard it. I kinda was cheekily like, Hey, we made a record. Do you think it's cool? And it was like right after they put out the first modern baseball record and they were like, We were gonna ask you if we could release this. And I was like, No way, that's cool. Somebody thinks something I did is cool. This is cool. And it's like, you know, people that I greatly respect and still love very much to this day. All of those songs from that, I think except for maybe one, I wrote on the last Dangerous Ponies tour. Chris, were you on that tour? No. I I quit the band by that point. Was it Andy? Was that the only tour we ever did with Andy Mikey? Yeah. I think so. I think, yeah, then that was our last big tour. And I just remember like the song Nietzsche's Harvest song I wrote in Tennessee outside of, I guess, where, what was that town called? Liberty or something? One of Chrissy's good friends. But yeah. I think a lot of our history kind of, it, it is like that combination of hard work and this like doing bold ideas like that, but also sort of falling into big opportunities like a big part of why we eventually got onto APA booking is because we became friends with Joyce Manor and that was because Evan became their driver for a tour I don't think Joyce Manor led to APA so much as modern baseball did Ellis came to our show that we were playing with Joyce Manor in New York and that's when he decided that he wanted to work with us but the only reason he came to that show is because Eric was our manager and Eric was Mobo's manager, and APA was working with Mobo. Mobo started bringing all these other bands around, so APA started checking out all these other bands on Eric's request because Eric was, quote-unquote, the person who found Mobo, if, if you want to put it that way. Or at least that's how it saw to me. Eric was the one who put all of that together, and they just happened to come see us when we played with Joyce Manor in New York at the very last show Austin ever played with us. Oh, yeah, our friend Austin Jefferson. Great, great artist, great guitar player. I have the poster from that show signed by everyone. 
Yeah, it wasn't that a Converse show also? Yeah. I feel like uh, it was Evan's plan from the beginning to kind of try to start at the top and just be a band that is just already doing stuff, given, you know, all of our resources and friends and we've played with so many people. I, I feel like I remember Evan in the beginning just being like, I want to try to start at the top. I feel like Evan always had a, you, that was always like your your plan was to, you know, do shit like open up for Taking Back Sunday or brand new. I always wanted to do that kind of stuff. When Eric got us Ellis and hooked up with APA and Peanut and those guys, yeah, I definitely wanted to take advantage of that and hustle. And uh, I mean, it was a huge learning experience too, because after our first few shows, Ellis came to us and was like, you guys really need to develop a personality on stage. Like you're all very stiff. We can't tell it's, it's not fun. Like you guys are too serious. And like, you know, we took that shit to heart and I feel like now, you know, looking back on it five years later, I'm just like, Hmm, you're right. We could have done a lot more. And like, I think even realizing that, I don't know, like when we toured with Reggie in the full effect, I would definitely do a bunch of weird bits. When we did the Mobo tour in Europe, we obviously did a lot of weird bits and like, that's kind of, you know, we were just trying different things out to see what worked and trying to get our stage personality together. Even though like, I feel like, you know, looking back on it now, I feel like we can all probably just like look at it and be like, oh yeah, we didn't have to try at all. We just should have enjoyed ourselves. And I think that's what Andrew was saying was for us to, you know, look like we're having a good time playing the show. I think that's ultimately like what it came down to, or at least that's how I felt. No, I I can remember looking back and just like thinking about like how, like I need to look professional. I, I need to not like make a fool of myself. Like all of these concerns that just like don't matter, especially in performing rock and roll. Where the whole point is, you have fun. You can show that it's safe to have fun, and so the crowd can also have fun in the, in the same way. Because of all those like concerns that got wrapped up in in all those years, I really missed out on some of the coolest things that like these are really rare special experiences. Like we got to play for two thousand people in London. Like we played a sold out show in London. I mean, it was because of modern baseball, but we still got to play for a massive crowd in overseas, and it was just like. I was so wrapped up in all these other aspects of it. I missed in the moment how absolutely amazing that was that we got to do that. But that that is a big thing that uh, we talked a little bit about it during the break. Uh, Evan and I were discussing this earlier today where we still want to reach as many people as possible. And, and like, you know, that's kind of part of just art in, in the world that we live in. But getting back in touch with enjoying the music that we make and having that experience while we're playing where we remember like those early years of playing music where there's something so freeing about playing an instrument and getting to express yourself in, in a wordless way and just have the feeling of the music kind of like you're experiencing it just as much as the listener because it's easy to get into this over analytic kind of element after you've been producing things for like a decade that we've been doing this or more now and just think about like mechanically how does this machine work but then we forget about like how much fun it is just to drive the car. And that's the that's where I want to be again this year and going forward. Like revisiting Genesis of touring? Just, not, not even that. Forgetting the touring, forgetting like all those other kind of trappings of being a professional musician and just enjoying the music for what it is again. It's so easy to lose sight of that. I was actually talking uh, 
when I saw Francis a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about this too, where it's so easy to ruin the experience of music for yourself when you're a professional musician, because there's so many elements of it that are just distracting. And in the end, like, yeah, you can worry about like, oh, how can I cater to my audience more? How can I like make this more professional, more accessible, more like, how can I sell myself more? But in the end, you have to love what you're doing in order to really make any of that stuff work. And you know, I, I love music. Evan loves music. Mikey loves music. Wilson loves music. Like this is something that we want to feel that love for again. But I, I also do want to say that I feel like that that has always been your MO is just the love of the music. And that's it. Like you guys have been in 10 bands at one time and you know, only four or five of them overlap. You guys would be like doing something and writing something and you were loving music and you weren't worried about the money. You weren't worried about like how it sounded. You weren't worried about the blogs. You were just like, I'm just going to keep going because I love doing this. And I have so much love and respect for that. You guys were just like, I don't care about anything else. I want to put this out in the world. I really like want to make something special that is of this time and of this moment that comes from my soul. I don't care if six people listen to it or six billion. And that was like, it was cool. You guys never lost that mentality. You guys never lost that momentum. It was just, we're just going to keep cranking it out. And you guys had project after project after project. And it was always amazing. And you guys just never stopped. And I think it was, that's amazing. Thank you, Barton. That you. is uh, an uplifting perspective. Yeah. It's so funny, but by that same token, where it's like a lot of it, even though like, there's a lot of hard work and a lot of great people like, like Eric and Emily who were behind us getting things done, there was still that like, like almost impostery feeling sometimes that happened. Like if we, when we were like for that Christmas show opening for Frankie Arrow and taking back Sunday. And I had a moment where I was just like, how are we here? Like, how was this what's happening to us right now? And you were at that show. And I think with my nerves kind of like got the best of me. And I, I, despite my stories, this episode, like I'm not much of a drinker. And Martin, I remember you brought me a bottle of whiskey. And this is the last thing I remember from this night that you and I split a bottle of whiskey in the green room after our set was over. And there's like little flashes here and there. I remember going out, stumbling out to see Evan at the merch table, scaring some of our, our, our new young fans with me just yelling to Evan, trying to get his attention, but genuinely just like getting lost in that rush in that moment. And that was very cool, especially considering at that show, Evan, your amp died, right? On stage during like our last two songs of the set. Yeah, I had the front man. It was fun. Yeah, he snatched the mic off the stand. Like after a couple seconds of like, you know, tooling around the amp, seeing if it could be salvaged, he just accepted the moment. Like, this amp is busted. Let's just have a good time. Let's play these last two songs. Yeah, you remember that, Mikey? <laughs> Evan went wild. Yeah, it was dude. awesome. Full on yeah, front man effect. And I, honestly, I think great. that amp breaking that night was like one of the best things for that crowd to really just see you let loose and be in the moment. And I, I feel like that's why it was so impactful for all of those people. Yeah, that rocked. That, was, that was honestly one of the coolest nights. We've had many cool nights together, all of us, but that was one of the coolest nights amongst many, those cool nights. Oh, completely agreed. I mean, you guys totally blew the top off the place. Um, like everybody was jumping and dancing and singing. And I still have pictures of that night since I brought my camera that have not seen the light of day yet. That it's just like a sea of people with like one like spot like splashing the crowd or something. Whatever it was, I don't know. Was it it was a ton of people just like 
absolutely into it's it. like a couple thousand, <laughs> like 1,500 or okay. something. Okay, I didn't want to like, make a fool out of myself. Like, was it 20,000? 40,000? Was it 100? Yeah, was that the Starland Ballroom? What was that venue that we played that night? Uh, Starland. Starland. It's in the middle of nowhere, New Jersey. Capacity is 2,500. It, it was pretty nice. full. So, um, yeah, it was probably pretty close to 2,500. Like, I literally, like, when you guys were up on stage, just, like, cracking photos, and every once in a while, I just go across the crowd like this. And it was just, like, everybody. The bartenders were looking. The entire crowd was, like, midair. It was amazing. I mean, yeah, Corey got the shout-out from Frankie Arrow later that that set or, or that show. I think that was a really, uh, really good time. Especially, I'm glad that we had the, got to have that night with him. I mean, we talked about it on uh, the specific Corey Story episode as well, but just getting to have that moment where he was acknowledged for having his like unbelievable thunderous bass tone uh, by Frankie Arrow and his band. I don't know, just on on all, on all levels, like you know, appreciating the the kind of the timbre that we brought, the production, and then also the fans who are in the crowd, just like really latching onto it. It's it's a rare thing. I do appreciate those moments that we had. I spent most of that. Taking back Sunday set in the green room with you guys, um, drinking whiskey and hanging out. My ears were ringing for two days after that show. There's only one probable suspect for that. Corey. Dick in a box. (laughs) Oh, a timely SNL short reference Um. from Michael (laughs) (laughs) Law. Incorrect, Mikey. (laughs) Well... Martin, I think this is a good place to wrap things up. Martin, where can people check out your work if they want to follow up and, and do a little bit more digging? Anything that you want people to know about yourself that maybe we haven't touched on? Honestly, no. I mean, you know, if you want to check out most sports arenas, that's pretty cool. Um, I would, again, <laughs> like to boost um, weeksaucephilly.com because they have the best hot sauce I've ever had. Beyond that, I, I I have nothing to report or nothing to, like, don't even follow me on Instagram because that's also terrible. <laughs> How can we not follow you're you on Instagram? You're a modest man, Martin. Oh, Martin. You're a very you're modest great. man. Downgrading your illustrious silver cane that I saw you with that first night to, to humble wood? I don't think so. Yeah, you're, you're too humble for your own good, Martin. I also got to give a shout out to the Christmas card Martin sent Chris oh my God, uh, with the beautiful. photoshopped yeah, the cats. The perfectly horribly photoshopped cats on the porch with him and Sammy. As soon as I opened that envelope, I, I <laughs> laughed out loud. Uh, I guess I'll give a shout out to that. If you would like your own <laughs> personalized, terrible Christmas card that has our cats on the front porch, send a check for $1,000. <laughs> <laughs> to Nyack no, Keo no, 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 31308. No. <laughs> okay, all right, so never mind. So actually, speaking, speaking of mail, just before we hop off, if you ever want to reach us and uh, send us some questions or thoughts into the podcast, you can email us at weeksshred at gmail.com, W E A K S S H R E D at gmail.com. And uh, yeah, we'd be happy to you know talk to anyone if you're listening and uh, give us some suggestions as to what you want to hear. Nard, would you like to do the sign off? What do I do? <laughs> Well, say this has been the Super Week Super Weekly Supercast. Sounds like Andrew just gave the sign-off. Wait, Martin, you do the sign-off. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening to the Super Weeks Super Weekly Podcast. I fucked it up like I did last time. (laughs) He doesn't doesn't work here. It's a Supercast. (laughs)
Thanks for listening. <laughs> Keep tuning in. There's going to be people that are going to be amazing here. Uh, way better than me. Um, uh, Stop being self-depreciating. <laughs> no, you know what? Nobody, nobody's going to be better than me. No one's going to be better than me. This is the best one. You should still yeah. subscribe for the highlights, but it, it's not going to get better than this one. I'm sorry, everyone. Perfect. <laughs>